Good morning. Pray with me, will you? Father, we come to your word eager to hear from you, eager to let your word impact our lives. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, we would receive it with gladness and that we would seek to live in the light of having received it, that you may be glorified by the life we lead. In Jesus' name, amen. Grab your Bibles and open to Nehemiah, if you will, please. I believe that's page 398 in the Bibles that are under your chairs. Nehemiah is volume two of a two-volume set, Ezra Nehemiah. We finished the book of Ezra just a couple of weeks ago, and now we proceed into the book of Nehemiah. And uh, I would encourage you as we go through Nehemiah one chapter at a time to uh, read that chapter as you go through the week. And so this week we're in chapter two, so next week, if you would, just read chapter three a few times and and come in anticipating what God would say to us all through his word. We saw last week in chapter 1, Nehemiah getting some really bad news. Uh, that the city that he loves, the city that his ancestors were buried in, the city of Jerusalem has had its walls destroyed and its gates burned. And uh, he goes into mourning over that, and he weeps, and he prays, and he fasts. And through all of that prayer and fasting, he gains certainty about what God wants him to do in the light of the bad news that he has just received. And so now as we move from that into chapter 2, we see Nehemiah stepping up with amazing courage to dare to talk to the most powerful man on earth, King Artaxerxes. And we ask ourselves, where did he get that courage to do that? The answer is in chapter 1. It was through that wrestling in prayer that he came to certainty that God wanted him to do that. And so based on that, he steps out in great courage and does it. Wrestling in prayer leads you to the point where you can do something really courageous. Haddon Robinson was a professor of uh, homiletics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He's had a huge impact for many, many years on many, many speakers. And I read this from Haddon Robinson a number of years ago. Here's something he said about wrestling in prayer like Nehemiah did. In the life of Jesus, prayer was the work and ministry was the prize. For me, prayer serves as preparation for the battle. But for Jesus, it was the battle itself. Having prayed, he went about his ministry as an honor student might go to receive a reward. Or as a marathon runner, having run the race, might accept the gold medal. Where was it that Jesus sweat great drops of blood? 
not in Pilate's hall, nor on his way to Golgotha. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, Hebrews 5.7. Had I been there and witnessed that struggle, I would have worried about the future. If he's so broken up when all he's doing is praying, I might have said, what will he do when he faces a real crisis? Why can't he approach this ordeal with the calm confidence of his three sleeping friends? Yet when the test came, Jesus walked to the cross with courage, and his three friends fell apart and fell away. Courage to do the hard thing comes when we wrestle in prayer and come to certainty about what it is God wants us to do. How do you face a tough task yourself? Where do you get the strength, the confidence, the courage? Nehemiah could face the challenges that we see him face in chapter 2 with courage because of what happened in chapter 1 where he became confident that God had called him to do these hard things and that God would provide what would be needed in order to do them. In the first chapter, Nehemiah gains certainty of what it is God calls him to do, and he puts it to the test right away. Here in the second chapter, as he talks to the king, as he looks at the mess that is left of Jerusalem, and as he meets the opposition. And because he is certain of his calling from God, he can face those challenges with confidence. And we can too. Last week, we considered the word process. I mentioned that it is both a verb and a noun, and we saw it in action in both ways. We process, verb, the hard things, the bad news that comes our way. And we recognize as we do that we are in a process, noun, a process that will deepen us and make us more like Christ when we come out the other side. And in that process, we can gain certainty about what it is God is calling us to do. And when we have done that, we can have the kind of confidence Nehemiah had to face our biggest fear and our toughest task and our strongest enemy. That's what we want to look at today, how Nehemiah could have that confidence and how we can too. So first, facing your biggest fear, looking at verses 1 through 9, facing your biggest fear. I heard somebody say once that courage is not Having no fear, courage is doing what you fear. Nehemiah's confidence in God showed up in his doing the very thing that he feared, the thing that caused him to tremble. Look at verses 1 through 3. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. That would be his role as cupbearer. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. 
Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Nehemiah was convinced God wanted him to talk to the king about the situation in Jerusalem. And because he was convinced of that, he was willing to do it, even though he was very much afraid. And so, based on that, Nehemiah did two things. The first thing that he did was he expressed sadness in the king's presence, verses 1 and 2. Now, last week, we saw him getting the bad news about Jerusalem. And in chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us that that bad news came to him in the month of Kislev. And we saw how he took some time to process that news with mourning and tears, with prayer and fasting. We didn't talk last week about how long that process was, except to notice that verse 4 of chapter 1 tells us that he mourned for days, mourned for some days. So how long was it? How long was that whole process that he went through before he would pray that final prayer in verses 5 to 11 on the day that he was to appear before the king? Recall at the end of the prayer, he says, give me favor with this man today as I go to him. So that prayer takes place on the day that he is going to speak to King Artaxerxes after the process is complete that led him to the conviction that he was to speak to him about what's going on in Jerusalem. How long was that? Well, take a look at chapter 2, verse 1. It tells us when that was. It was in the month of Nisan. Now, Kislev is in our calendar the middle of November to the middle of December. Nisan, in our calendar, is the middle of March to the middle of April. So it's about four months that Nehemiah prayed and fasted and brought his petitions to the Lord. Took it to the Lord until he became certain of what it was God wanted him to do. And now it seems here as we open chapter 2 that God has given him the green light to stop trying to cover up his sadness in the presence of the king. And so he goes ahead and he lets his feelings show and Artaxerxes notices and he asks him, what is it? What's making you sad in my presence? And now it says in verse 2, Nehemiah is afraid. The king has noticed his sadness, and he is very much afraid. It says, why do you suppose that would be? It's because Artaxerxes was an ancient Near Eastern monarch, and to be in his presence is supposed to be the best thing that ever happened to you. If you're sad in his presence, something's really wrong, and something might just have to be done about it. To be in Artaxerxes' presence should just delight Nehemiah to no end. And Nehemiah is sad in his presence. Expressing sadness in the presence of an ancient Near Eastern monarch is a very dangerous thing to do. And there's more. 
Not only does he express his sadness in Artaxerxes' presence, but verse 3 tells us he brings Artaxerxes a very tough message. In essence, he says, You have allowed my city to be ruined, the city where my fathers are buried. This is no small matter to Nehemiah. Artaxerxes had destroyed his home, and he took the opportunity to tell him about that. Now, if the first thing that he did didn't make Artaxerxes mad, expressing sadness in his presence, this second thing, blaming him for the destruction of the city, certainly would. And for either of those offenses, Artaxerxes could have had Nehemiah's head. This says something, I think, about the faithful service that Nehemiah had been rendering to Artaxerxes for however long he was his cupbearer. It says something about the relationship that he built with this man through faithful service. And so not only was he willing to say why he was sad, he was also willing to say what the king could do about it. Look at verses 4 through 6. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. The king asks, what is it you want? What is it you want? You get a sense of Nehemiah's continuing fear by the flash prayer that he sends up in verse 4 before answering. There, there is this moment between the king's question and Nehemiah's answer when verse 4 says, and I prayed to the God of heaven and then I answered the king. You know it wasn't long, right? It's not, excuse me, I need to go to my room and pray before I answer you. It's, it's the king asked, I prayed and I answered. I call it a flash prayer. There are seven other flash prayers here in the book of Nehemiah, where, where Nehemiah just says something that could be said in a couple of seconds. There is no record of the words he used here in the flash prayer of verse 4, because I don't think there'd be much of anything to write. It's sort of a, here goes, Lord, prayer. The kind I uttered as I was exiting an airplane for the first time with a parachute on my back. You know God has called you to this thing. You've been working up to it for a while. You know he will equip you. The opportunity opens and you step into it or out into it and say, Here goes, Lord. Here goes. And as you step into whatever it is you realize he's called you to, you want to just stay in touch with the one who's called you there. And that's what Nehemiah does. So there's this flash prayer, and then he answers the king. And the first thing that he asks for is that Artaxerxes would send him to Jerusalem. Verse 5. 
Send me to the city where my fathers are buried, this city that means so much to me, so that I can rebuild it. Now the phrasing of the next verse, verse 6, suggests there's a pause here. Take a look at verse 6. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, dot, 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 right? You kind of get this, you're being set up for something here. Seems to describe the stateliness of the place. It seems to describe the majesty of the moment. It seems to describe the incredible danger that Nehemiah had just put himself into. And it's like the author is asking you to complete the sentence. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, fill in the blank. What might you fill that blank in with? Said off with his head. Or stood up and tore his royal robes. Or maybe... Uh, rose in anger and said, how dare you insult me in the presence of my queen? Any of those could have been possible. And I think Nehemiah was prepared for any one of those possibilities. He had probably rehearsed all of them in his mind as he anticipated approaching King Artaxerxes. But he was sure that he was doing what God had called him to do, and so he did it anyway. Courage is not the absence of fear, it's doing the thing you fear. The very next book in the Bible is the book of Esther. You remember when Esther got to that point, she needed to speak to King Xerxes, Ahasuerus in the ESV, otherwise known as Xerxes. And going in to talk to him, what does she conclude? I'm going to say this, and if I perish, I perish. I will perish knowing I'm doing the thing God has called me to do. But the king completes the sentence for the author in verse 6 by asking Nehemiah, just how long are you going to be gone? When will you be back? And Nehemiah knows now that he's got a favorable answer, and so he tells him how long he needs, and he dares even to ask for more. He asks for some help. Look at verses 7 through 9. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress and of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. He asks for some things. He asks for letters of safe conduct. Remember, Ezra didn't do that. Ezra had just gotten done boasting about the greatness of God, and he couldn't bring himself to ask for any kind of help. Nehemiah sees it differently, asks for letters of safe conduct. He asks for letters requesting timber for the rebuilding. And the king gives him all of that, plus more. Verse 9 tells us that he gives him a cavalry escort. 
Why? Verse 8, because the good hand of my God was upon me. God had provided. I'm doing the thing God's called me to do, and he's going to provide what I need to do it. So, what's your biggest fear? What would happen to that fear if you took about four months to pray it through and became convinced of the action God wanted of you in dealing with it? That's what Nehemiah did. It's not beyond any of us. If you knew for certain what God wanted you to do about the thing you fear the most, do you think you could have the courage to put one foot in front of another and do it? I'd say, of course you can. If God has called you to do that thing, he will see you through it. He will provide what's needed. When you're certain of what God wants you to do, you'll have the confidence to face your biggest fear. The second thing that we see in Nehemiah here is facing your toughest task in verses 11 to 18. Take a look with me at verses 11 to 16 first. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up by, in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work." Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, stays a few days, and wants to size up the situation firsthand. So he sets out on a secret mission at night to inspect the walls. We have a, a diagram that, that shows the city of Jerusalem, and I've marked out on the bottom of it the path that he took. He came out through the valley gate, went past the dung gate, up around the fountain gate, couldn't get in through the fountain gate. It says there was, there was no room there for the animal that was under me to pass. So either he couldn't get through the fountain gate mounted on his horse, or he couldn't even lead the horse through it. Such is the disastrous state of the city of Jerusalem. And at that point, he has seen enough. And so he turns back and comes back through the valley gate. He didn't even go all the way around the city. He had seen enough in that brief time during the night. Things are in bad shape. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned. What does he do now? What does he do now? What does he say to the people who had been living there, who had been so beaten down? Does he say, nice place you got here? 
These people were demoralized. They had done what they could, and they realized they were powerless, and there was nothing more they could do. They tried to rebuild, but the local opposition was strong. And the local opposition had the backing of King Artaxerxes. And they'd come to the conclusion there was nothing more they could do. Would Nehemiah really be able to change any of that? What might give him any reason to think he could? The answer is back in chapter 1. It's that wrestling in prayer that brought him to the confidence that he was the man God wanted to use and that he would be able to make a difference. God had put it on his heart, verse 12, to rebuild Jerusalem. And based on that, he had confidence in what he could do. And more than that, he instilled confidence in the demoralized people that he had to deal with there in Jerusalem. Look at verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. You can just hear him speaking confidence into them. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. Let's do it. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. I read of a man who early in his ministry became so demoralized and discouraged that he wondered if God had really called him into it. And he concluded that if God had, then God is not good. In his desperation, he said to his wife, what am I to do? He had invested all of these years in training and all of this and landed in ministry and didn't know what to do. And she said, I don't know what you're going to do, but for right now, for tonight, hang on to my faith. Because I believe, I believe that God is good. I believe that he loves us and that he is going to work through this experience. So hang on to my faith. I have enough for both of us. He got him through. He went on to be a great pastor, a great preacher, a great author. And what his wife did for him that dark night, Nehemiah did for the people in Jerusalem. He was so confident of God's calling and direction that he knew what God wanted him to do, to rebuild. And he knew that if God had called him to do that, that God would provide the resources needed along the way. And he instilled that confidence in the people of Jerusalem. So, 
What's your toughest task? Maybe your job is a burden to you. Maybe you have some relational things that you need to straighten out that seem like a huge, insurmountable obstacle. What if you could break through to certainty about what it is God wants you to do in that situation? Could you step forward with confidence? And could you instill confidence in others? You bet you could. If God has called you to it, he will see you through it. When you're certain of what it is God wants you to do, you will have confidence to face your toughest task. The third thing we see Nehemiah doing is facing his strongest enemy. Look at verse 10. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And then skip down to verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Facing your strongest enemy, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Three names that don't mean much to us, do they? We don't think much of them. We're not impressed. We're not awestruck. But the people in that day would have been. Sanballat would go on to become the governor of Samaria. There is a document from 407 BC that shows him to be an old man and the governor of Samaria 38 years after the events of this chapter. So he may not have been governor at the time that he encountered Nehemiah, but he was a powerful man on his way to the governorship. Imagine uh, writing somewhere, I stood toe-to-toe with Tony Evers and, and faced him down. You know, powerful person, governor. Tobiah, the name of a prominent Jewish family in Ammon connected to the high priest. So this Tobiah was probably the intelligence officer of the operation. He could get them the inside scoop on what was happening in Jerusalem right from the high priest. Geshem, probably a more powerful figure yet. His name appears on a silver vessel near the end of the 5th century. Evidence suggests that Geshem ruled a league of Arab tribes that took control of Moab and Edom, Judah's neighbors to the east and to the south. These three men together are a powerful force. The bottom line is this, Jerusalem is now encircled by powerful enemies, and they weren't hesitant to try and intimidate Nehemiah and company. Verse 19 says, they mocked them, they ridiculed them, they despised them. They asked, are you rebelling against the king? That was a tactic that worked in Ezra chapter 4. 
But it wasn't going to work here. Why? Because Nehemiah was confident of what God had called him to do. Nehemiah doesn't waver. He states his confidence in God. It's interesting to note that he doesn't cite his permission from the king as his authority. But rather, he cites his commission from God. The builders will build, and those men will have no share in this city. And so confident of what God wants him to do, Nehemiah stands his ground. Nehemiah stands his ground. So, who or what is your toughest enemy? Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's someone who has done some cruel things to you. Maybe it's a habit that you just can't shake. If you have prayed through to certainty about what God wants you to do, about your strongest enemy, do you think you could do it? Of course you could. If God has called you to do that, he will provide what's needed along the way. When you're certain of what God wants you to do, you will have confidence to face your strongest enemy. So, what do we do with this message? What can you take from Nehemiah chapter 2? Basically this, if God has called you to it, he will see you through it. Now, you can say that's a cliche, but I made it up myself, so I didn't get it from anybody, you know, just because it happens to rhyme, you know. Maybe that'll make it more memorable. If God has called you to it, he will see you through it. When you're certain of what it is God wants you to do, you'll have confidence to face your biggest fear, your toughest task, and your strongest enemy. So what's God calling you to do? Let me suggest something that struck me when I went through this passage that I, I think we can take from here and apply to our own lives. The city of Jerusalem was central to the people of God in the Old Testament. In the days of Solomon, people traveled there from all around to see the splendor of the city of Jerusalem. It was the glory of God's people. And when Jerusalem lay in ruin, it was a disgrace to the God whose name was associated with that city and his people. And for the sake of God's name, his people wanted to repair it. His people wanted to restore the splendor of that place. Nehemiah became convinced of that and wanted to glorify God by restoring the city to something that could reflect the glory of God once again. Like that city, the lives of God's people are to reflect his glory. I wonder, is there something in your life today that lies in ruins like that city did? Is there something that God looks at in you and says, this does not glorify me. Maybe it once did, but the glory is long gone now. Is God calling you to repair the breaches so that he can be glorified in your life once again? Fix the ruins to the glory of God. What is God calling you to? 
and what stands in your way? What's your biggest fear, your toughest task, your strongest enemy? Those things will not be able to stand when you have broken through to certainty of what it is God wants you to do. Pray till you've prayed, break through to that certainty, and then move with confidence in God. Because if he's called you to do it, he will see you through it. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I pray that you would take this text and apply it to our lives. Thank you for the confidence of Nehemiah, the confidence of one who prayed until he knew your will for his life, who knew what he, you wanted him to do, and because he was convinced of that, had the courage to follow through. And so, Lord, I pray that our desire to serve you would give us confidence that as you bring certainty to our minds about the things you would have us do, living out your word, that you would also give us certainty that you'll provide what's needed as we do it. I pray, Lord, that our lives would reflect your glory and that we would live in such a way that others see that glory and are drawn to you themselves. In Jesus' name, amen.